Acts chapter 13 is where we're at. Uh, and we've been working our way through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings. And mostly, uh, this has been like a documentary, right, of like how the church was born, how the Jesus followers uh, gathered together and began following uh, what God had called them to, what Jesus had said, go and make disciples. And uh, as we were working our way through this, we got to Acts chapter 12, and there was this weird like side tangent that the Bible went on. It was like, if you were reading through, uh, you would have been like Jesus, Acts chapter 1, and then apostles, and then prayer, and then Holy Spirit, and then miracles, and then more prayer, and then more miracles, and the more Holy Spirit, and the more prayer, and disciples, and then you get Acts chapter 12, and it's pride, self-magnification, brutal death, and then we go back to prayer, and more miracles, and you're like, wait, what happened there? Like, we, we got to this guy named Herod, and he was a king, and God just took this little detour in Acts chapter 12 and said, oh yeah, this guy was all about himself, all about magnifying himself, and then ended up dying a brutal death because of it. And the Bible says he was eaten by worms and fell over dead because the Lord struck him down. So if you weren't paying attention and you're just kind of like following this, you're like, oh, this is such a detour from where we've been. Like what has been going on? So what we did was as we went through Acts chapter 12, we saw that this was pointing out two very different paths that people were on. Okay, I'm going to actually throw that up on the screen so you can understand what we're talking about. And we've spent about six weeks now talking about these two different paths. The first one that Herod was on was this path of pride that led to idolatry, was the worship of things that are not God for the purpose of self-magnification. Like, I'm making much of myself. And then what happened was we saw the other path that the story of Herod was like shoved in the middle of, and it was the path of humility which led to worship of God for the purpose of God magnification. And so what God did was he put the story of Herod right in the middle of these other things that the Holy Spirit was doing, of these other things that God was working through. And what happens when you hold things up next to each other? You see the differences, right? That's why you hold stuff up next to one another. So when God shoved this story of Acts chapter 12 and Herod right in the middle of these other chapters about God working in and through the apostles while he was being magnified, you realize very quickly these paths are very different. What Paul is about, what Barnabas is about, what Peter is about is very different than what Herod was about. And the paths become very clearly different. So we've been talking about that for about six weeks. And what's interesting is, if you go back to Acts chapter 12, Herod was on this path of pride, idolatry, and self-magnification. And it led, at the end of his life, to this, uh, this uh, speech that he gave. Right? It was like building, building, building speech. And there was like this speech. And it was like, yeah, Herod, you're so incredible. You're like a god, not like a man. And then the angel of the Lord struck him down. And this path of God magnification also has been building. We saw Paul and Barnabas start in prayer and fasting, start in obedience to the Holy Spirit. It leads to self-sacrifice, and it built, 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 and also led to a speech. It was the Apostle Paul's first ever recorded sermon that we read last week in Acts chapter 13. And so we're going to look at kind of the parallels of this path of self-magnification and the speech that it led to, and this path of God-magnification and the speech that it led to. So that's actually where we ended up last week, and we, we covered the actual sermon that Paul gave. So if you weren't here, not a huge deal. I'm going to cover it, at least the big points of it right now, so to catch up 
with everybody. But what, what you will notice if you read through this sermon that Paul gave in Acts chapter 13 is he quickly reminds the audience of 12 incredible things that God has done. Just like I said about that song that we sang at the end, it was just like line after line after line of God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God coming through when you didn't think there was going to be a way and God making a way when everything seemed lost and there was no hope. And the sermon was all about the goodness of God. God was so clearly magnified and the supremacy of God was affirmed and God was exalted. And it was the exact opposite of Herod's speech in Acts chapter 12, where Herod was made much of, and he magnified himself. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, as I talk about how much Paul magnified God in his sermon, you might be like, duh, Jared. Like, isn't that the point of religion, to magnify God? Don't all religious people make a big deal about God? No, they don't. In fact, there's a ton of people who, when you talk about religion, the point is not to make much of God. The point is to make much of themselves. Think about this. When I say religious people, how many of you, the first thing you think of is the goodness of God? When I say religion or religious people, usually the first thing we think of is rules, right? We don't think, oh, religious people, they make much of the goodness of God. No, we think religious people, and then we think rules. You know what's interesting about this sermon that Paul gave? How many rules were in it? There weren't any. There were no rules. He didn't say one rule in the whole first sermon, right? He didn't say, you know, thou shalt not be sexually immoral. I mean, that's not a commandment, but like he didn't go over any of those. Right? He didn't. He proclaimed the goodness of God and let the Holy Spirit work in people's hearts to develop gratefulness, which would then change their lives. That was his philosophy. Tell the people how good God has been. Tell them of his kindness. Let them sit under the weight of God's grace and let, let them and the Holy Spirit figure out what it looks like for them to be grateful and respond. I think... This principle of God magnification is so important because of the world we live in today, right? Uh, you might not know this. I've been pointing out my student section over here. Woo! Uh, they don't like being looked at. So last week when I was like, everybody look at me, they were like, don't look at me. So don't look at them. Just look at me. But even though you know they're there, we're just going to be like. This generation that's coming up, I usually don't take lots of time to like do like cultural analysis here. We usually just kind of stick to the scriptures, but I think this is important to point out. If we wanted to, we could build a church where we told our young people, follow the rules, which some of you parents would be like, please tell my kid to follow the rules because we want behavior modification. We want our kids to do better and try harder and, and magnify us by following the rules. But we could do that. We could just be like, follow the rules. God will not send you to hell. It'll all be good. The problem is that doesn't inspire anybody. If you walk into a church and I give you a long list of rules that you're not doing very good at following, you're not inspired when you leave, which is a huge deal to the next generation because these guys are creators in ways that the previous generations were never creators. You're like, what are you talking about? All the social media, 
all the new technology, all the things that are at their fingertips that were not at previous generations' fingertips has encouraged them to be creators in ways that we were not creators. My kid, like, think about this. You guys are going to, this is going to blow your mind. I was 22 years old before I took a picture of myself. Right? My daughter's three. She's been taking pictures of herself for a year and a half. Right? She found our phone. and was like, there's a camera button on the front of this lock screen. And like, she figured out how to take pictures of herself. Right? I did not make a video that anybody saw on the internet. If I wrote something, my teacher and my mom read it. And that was it. Right? Like, this generation is creating and like using that creation and sending it out to the world in ways that previous generations never had the capacity to do. So here's my theory. Let's get the goodness of God into them. Let's let them see clearly how incredible our God is so that when they create, it's based on a heart that understands the grace of God instead of just telling them to follow the rules so they don't annoy us. Rant over. All right, now that we've caught up a little bit on Paul's sermon and what it was about, let's actually look at the fallout from it. So Paul spent so much time talking about how good God was, and and look at what happens. Acts chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 44. It says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews... So remember, Paul was in a synagogue teaching... They said, do you have anything to say? He stood up and preached his first sermon, and they were so excited. They're like, please, can you talk to us about this next week? And he said, yes, I can. So look, the next Sabbath, verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But the Jews who were running the synagogue, who let Paul teach in the first place, when they saw the crowds, verse 45, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since then you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I'm actually going to start at the end of this. Okay? So there's another uh, little list here of the two paths that I'm going to put up. Look at verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So at the end of this path of humility, worship, and God magnification, we end with joy. That's the end destination. That's where this ends up. Okay? And I want to point that out at the very beginning because it's going to help us process how they got to joy. Now, I point that out because we hear the word joy And most of us assume two things. We think we know what joy is, and we think we know how to get it. 
And I'm here to tell you that very few people actually know what joy is, both inside and outside of the church, and very few people know how to get it. This happened actually quite a bit in life. We assume that we know what something is, right? When in reality, we have no idea. We make judgments about certain things when we have bad information about those types of things, right? Like I worked in Alaska uh, for a season on a fishing boat, uh, and we caught fresh salmon all the time, right? So I ate fresh salmon all the time, and it kind of ruined me for seafood or especially salmon for the rest of my life because people go to yolks, and they get like Atlantic salmon. It was like like grown in a tank somewhere, right? And they're like, I don't like salmon. I was like, well, you may or may not like salmon, but the thing you got from Tidyman's, which doesn't exist anymore, right? That, like, the thing you got from Rosar's, like, isn't, like, it's kind of a version of salmon, but you probably don't actually know if you like salmon or not, right? Because that mushy pink stuff is not a, the greatest representation. Like, that's kind of a trivial example, but I'll go for a deeper example. I was talking to a girl uh, recently, and uh, she says marriage is a joke. Are you ever going to get married? No, it's a joke. It's, like a, it's, it's just a big joke. And so I keep talking to her, and it comes come to find out she's from a family, an uh, abusive family, uh, where the dad was verbally and physically abusive, uh, and then the dad cheated on the mom, uh, and that was her mom's second marriage. So her mom had been divorced before, ended up in this family. They had kids, uh, ended up abusive household. Then the mom left the dad. Uh, then the mom ends up also not thinking very highly of marriage, so is now uh, very older in life and just living in this weird, complicated, live-in boyfriend situation where nobody could figure out what's going on. And I'm like, you don't even know what marriage is. How can you rightly judge if it's a joke or not? Like, 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 okay, maybe marriage is not, like, I don't know, but what you are talking about is not what marriage is. What you have experienced is not marriage, right? Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is this thing where God decided that with commitment and love and self-sacrifice and the Holy Spirit that he was going to bring two people together to understand covenant in a way they would not understand previously, and, and reveal himself to them through the commitment of marriage. Like, that's not a joke. But if you go over here and be like, we're going to be sexually immoral, and we're going to have no trust, and we're just going to do it the way we want, and we're going to not have the Holy Spirit, and we're not going to have the commitment, and we're going to call it marriage, well, no wonder you think that's a joke. Right? You don't have any of the ingredients. Right? It's like, I'm going to make an apple pie. Okay, where's the apples? Uh, mine has cherries. That's not an apple pie. Right? And we do that with joy. We think we know what joy is, when in reality, we have no idea what joy is. We don't even know how to get there. If you read this passage from Acts chapter 13, verse 1, all the way through, what we saw is we saw prayer, we saw fasting, we saw people walking by faith, we saw sacrifice in leaving everything. We saw obedience to the Holy Spirit. We saw serving others, even when it didn't benefit themselves. We saw staying true to the God's call, even when there wasn't great outward victories. We saw persecution. We saw faithfulness to the obedience that they were walking in. And then at the end of verse 52, we see joy. Right? That's the, that's the way they got, those are the ingredients that led to that. 
and there's this giant, like, giant uh, percentage of the population who are not in pursuit of this type of joy because they don't even know what it is or how to get there, and they think they know what joy is because they go to church or they consider themselves a good person, but they never spent this type of time in prayer. They never actually walked by faith. They spent the entirety of their lives avoiding sacrifice, not actually sacrificing, right? And at the end of the day, they are perfectly comfortable continuing lives that are largely self-magnifying. Because of that, they have no idea what joy actually is. No idea. Our world has no idea what God magnification looks like, let alone the joy that results from God magnification. I, the, I was reading First Peter this week, and just the, the reading I do for myself, and it, it was said, the people of the world are going to look at you, and they're going to think it's weird that you aren't doing the things they're doing. And they're like, why are they not joining us? Because they don't understand God magnification. And yet giant percentages of the population who consider themselves Christians are never considered weird. Why? Because we engage in the same self-magnification things as everybody else. And therefore, we don't experience the joy. And verse 44 is a perfect example of this. Look at it. The next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken of by Paul. Guys, of all the people on the planet who should have been so excited that the synagogue was packed to the gills and everybody was hearing the word of the Lord taught, the Jews should have been first in line, right? Like what kind of like religious body leader is like, oh, there's too many people. This is so awful. Right? He, they should have been like, yes, the word of God is being taught to the whole city. Please bring them all in. But is that what they were? No. They were jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. They were jealous. Jealous and joy are mutually exclusive. Nobody looks at somebody who's jealous and is like, yeah, they got a little jealousy issue, but man, the rest of their life is just so joy-filled. <laughs> this doesn't happen, right? Jealous people don't have joy. They're the perfect example of how you can worship God for the purpose of magnifying self. How you can be religious for the purpose of magnifying self. So that when God actually works, you're not joyful, but you're Jealous. And here's what's so sneaky about self-magnification. Self-magnification never produces what you think it's going to produce. Right? So these guys think that them giving their lives to the synagogue as good Jewish boys and girls and reading their scriptures and doing the prayers and attending religious services in order to magnify themselves, they think that's going to puff themselves up. Then when God actually brings an increase, they're not joy-filled. They're jealous. And they're like, man, this self-magnification thing, I thought I'd enjoy it more. And it always happens like that. I was actually talking with Toby as we were driving down the street the other day, and he's like, I went to the skate park, and there's this kid I didn't know, and he told me a flat-out lie. And I was thinking as he was talking to me that, like, that's not true. And what, what I told Toby, I said, yeah, that kid is probably insecure, right? And so he's insecure about what he really is, so he thinks he needs to tell you a lie to magnify himself in your eyes. And what really happened is he told the lie and he didn't magnify himself in Toby's eyes. 
he made himself smaller. Because Toby looked at him and said, you're lying. And that happens all the time, right? We just do the grown-up version of that. We're like, I'm going to magnify myself. And it never produces what you think it's going to produce. You think puffing yourself up is going to lead to joy, and it leads to not joy. It actually makes you smaller in other people's eyes. Like, here's what's interesting about this whole path thing. Like, God wants you to know how to get to joy. Have you ever thought about that? Like, he's not trying to hide it from you. He's not like, hmm, ha, I'm going to hide joy in the world, and they're going to have to find it. <laughs> like, no, he wants you to know how to get to joy. The problem is so many of us don't want to do what he calls us to do to get there. And I was, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that soapbox. Here we go, verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, so the Jews are jealous now, right? And Paul and Barnabas see the Jews that are jealous, and they spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. All right, now this is pretty interesting here. We're going to have to do a bit of thinking on your behalf, right? So don't check out on me. Like, engage your brain right now. And you might get mad at me for this, but that's okay. That's a risk I'm willing to take. This is what the Bible teaches. You ready? Here we go. In the Old Testament, God chose a certain nation to be his people. Okay? Why did he choose them? Because he wanted, through them, to bring salvation to the entire world. Okay, so if you've ever been wondering, like, what's all this going on? Like, at the very beginning, mankind sinned. The first thing God did in Genesis chapter 3 was say, I'm sending the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So I'm going to bring a savior that was promised to everybody. And then later on in Genesis chapter 12, it zooms in on Abraham. And God says, I'm going to bring that promised savior that I want to save everybody through, through this family. And that became the Jews. And that became the chosen people of God to save the whole world. But the motivation was God's desire to love and save the entire world. It'd be kind of like if I wanted you all to get donuts this morning and I picked somebody. Let's say I picked Fernando, right? And I said, Fernando, will you go pick up donuts for me on the way to church so that everybody can have a donut? My desire is that everybody would have a donut in here. I want you all to have a donut. That is the condition of my heart. I just happened to call Fernando because he's a good dude, and I knew out of the kindness of his heart he would pick donuts up on the way in. So if he walked in, I was like, Jared called me to bring donuts. Don't know about the rest of you losers, but I drove them all the way here. You're welcome. Right? You'd be like, uh, well, if he wanted us all to have donuts, maybe he cares about all of us. Fernando's like, nope, I'm actually better than the rest of you. I brought the donuts. You did? Yeah. Well, did Jared pay for them? Yeah, he did. Did he tell you what store to go to? Yes, he did. Did he tell you what time to be there? Yes, he did. But I'm better than you. 
Right? And that's what was happening to the Jews. God desired to save the entire world, but because God had chosen them, they misinterpreted why he was choosing them. They thought somehow that they were closer to salvation or they didn't need the same sort of grace that everybody else on the planet needed. And this is what happened to the Jews. Yes, God chose them, but no, he didn't choose them because they were somehow better people than the rest of the world. They were sinners in need of salvation just like everybody else on the planet. And Paul, in verse 47 right here, quotes the Bible to remind them of this. So he quotes their own scripture to tell them they have got it wrong. He said, I made you a light to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Jews had begun to think that they were better people than everybody else on the planet. And what Paul says is, hey guys, you are acting like you're special when you're not So now I'm going to turn my attention to these people over here who aren't Jewish because they actually believe they need the grace of God. And the non-Jewish people believed in the gospel. The word for non-Jewish people in your Bible is Gentiles. The non-Jewish people believed in the word of God, believed the gospel, followed Jesus, rejoiced in the goodness of God, leading to the word of God spreading through the whole region. So the Gentile culture actually ends up more God-magnifying than the Jewish culture in our story. Let that sink in for a second. The people who read their Bibles, who memorized the scriptures, who prayed regularly, who went to religious service every weekend, the Gentiles ended up more God-magnifying than those people. Why do I bring that up? We live in America. And there's a certain segment of our society that has started to believe that we're better than somebody else. We're the Christian nation. We were founded on Christian principles. It's not true. If it wasn't true for the Jews, it's not true for us either. Right? Every culture in society has strength and weaknesses that either represent the character of God or do not represent the character of God. And yes, there are great things about our culture that represent the character of God that we can affirm, but we have a whole bunch of idols too. And so we don't glorify God more than Afghanistan or Tibet or India. And to think so is ridiculous. They might not have the same strengths as we have, But they have different strengths, different things that affirm the character of God. Like, there is not a group of people on the planet who are closer to salvation than another. There's not, God's not up in heaven like, you know what, India needs a whole bunch of grace, but America only needs like half the grace because they're pretty good. Do you know how ridiculous that is? And yet there's some American flag underwear people here that are like, we're God's chosen people. If the Jews weren't God's chosen people, we don't got a chance. I love America. I think it's awesome to live here. But if the Jews weren't better, then we definitely aren't better. And to act as if we got it figured out and the rest of the world is somehow further from God is just not in the Bible. It's just false. 
Now, watch what the Jews do. Remember, these are the religious people. These are the people who should have had it figured out. But the Jews incited, verse 50, the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so put my pass, the pastor up here. Okay? Good job, sound people. You're killing it, Jack. Well done. Did you get a candy? I got a bunch of candies left over. I'm going to give you all of them. Anyway, so there's these two paths we've been talking about. Paul and Barnabas are on this God magnification path. The Jews are clearly on the other path, right? The pride, self-magnification, not joy path. And what's interesting is at the end of our story of these two paths, the Jews are spreading the elements of their path. And Paul and Barnabas are also spreading the elements of their path. Did you see that? Look at verse 50. The Jews incited other people, right? So the Jews are going around. They're like contagious. It's a pandemic. You guys understand a pandemic, right? It's contagious, right? The path you are on is contagious. The pride, idolatry, self-magnification path will be spread, and therefore you will spread the not joy, or the humility, worship, God magnification path will be spread, and you will spread joy. We keep going backwards because we understand that, yes, self-magnification is bad, but we just allow a little bit into it of our little bit of it in our lives. We just like, I kind of like this little bit of self-magnification. The problem with it is once you let it in, you spread it. You spread it. And I do this thing as a dad, which is really hard for me to do. I know I shouldn't be about self-magnification, but I kind of am okay with my kid being about self-magnification. Isn't that hard as a parent? Right? You're like, no, we should be humble. And like, it's okay if we lose. And we're not, not everything's going to be. But I want my kid to win all the time. And I want my kid to be better than everybody else. And I want my kid to have all the opportunities that I never had. And I'm like, wait, we're missing here. What's happening? I'm spreading this self-magnification idea. Because now I think somehow that my kid is a reflection on me. And so if I give my kid all the stuff and I make his life easier, and if he never loses a game, then somehow that reflects better on me and I puff myself. You see how sneaky this path of self-magnification is. It was most humbling things. The, one of the most humbling things ever is having that conversation with my son, Toby, right? And I, I said that kid was lying, and I said he's, he's probably insecure, and he's just trying to build himself up, and it actually wasn't working. And he, he thinks he's making his life better, but he's actually not. And actually, people do that a lot. Grown-ups do that, too. And then we started talking about how people do this all the time, and Toby started telling me about a friend of his, and he goes, my friend always tells stories where he's the hero. Right? He always tells stories that make him look good. Like every story one of my friends tells is just like the hero. And he's like, I just get so tired of it. And I was like, yeah, that's self-magnification at its base. And then I asked Toby, I said, do I do that? And you know what Toby said? Sometimes. 
Thanks, bro. <laughs> My guess is God didn't lead us to spend six weeks on this theme because somebody out there needed it. Probably because I needed it. Probably there's plenty of self-magnification God is trying to burn out of my heart that I need to apologize and repent of. And, and here's where I'll finish. Because maybe some of this is helpful to you. This crazy line in verse 46. Paul is talking directly again to the Bible reading, service attending, tithe giving, consistently praying, good people, Jews. And he says in verse 46, the word of God was spoken to you, you thrust it aside, and in so doing, judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Ouch. Right? The word of God, here's the picture. The word of God goes forth to these people who should have been ending in God magnification and joy. And they said, nope, not doing that. Thrust it aside, said, I don't need joy. I don't need eternal life. I'm going to judge myself unworthy of what you have to offer me. Some of you are hearing this message and will be tempted to thrust it aside and therefore judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life and unworthy of joy. And others of you will hear me talk about the path of joy being one of sacrifice and faithfulness and prayer, and you will be like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. I would, I would warn you against that. There's people in this story that did that. And the end of the story is not, jealous, is not joy. It's something else, right? They're walking around from city to city, spreading their anger. Is that what you want from your life? Be like, you should be mad too, like I'm mad. How's that working for you? <laughs> it's not. Right? You should be angry about this like I'm angry about this. You should be fed up like I'm fed up. Like that's, Is that what you want to be spreading? Don't judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Don't judge yourself unworthy of true joy. If the Holy Spirit through the word of God is convicting your heart, repent, please. And I'm not saying that because I just want you to follow more rules. I'm saying that because God wants you to experience the joy that comes from a life that is humbly worshiping him and making much of him. If God convicts your heart this morning, don't judge yourself unworthy of what he's calling you to. Ask him for the grace to repent and change and walk with newness of life. Don't thrust it aside in pride. God brought you here this morning because he loves you. God brought you here this morning to hear this message because he cares about you. He doesn't want you to end on that path that leads to self-magnification and not joy. Do you believe that God wants everyone in here to have joy this morning? I, I do too. But I don't believe that because I just want to be like some self-help guy, right? God wants you to be happy. No, no, I see it in the scriptures. Like the word of God has taught me that God wants us to have joy. Now, the path is a little harder to get to than just me telling you, be happy when you walk out. But I have confidence that the Holy Spirit will lead you to what that looks like for you. Amen? Jake, come on up. We'll finish with this last song. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that you offer us uh, the guidance 
of what it looks like to live a life in humility, what it looks like to worship you, what it looks like to magnify you, and how that path ends in joy. And Father, I pray that those in here would be understanding of that path this morning. I pray that your spirit would be convicting where conviction needs to be, Lord. Lord, if there's things we're doing in our lives to magnify ourselves and that's robbing us of joy, would you please make that clear to us? Lord, don't leave us like you found us. There's not a more miserable place in life than to be stuck. Don't leave us stuck, Lord. Give us the path forward. We want to know you. We want to find freedom. We want to discover our purpose. We want to make a difference in this world. We want to be disciples that know joy. Lead us in that life, Lord. Everyone in here, Lord, I pray that you would lead them in that life. We ask you in precious name. Amen.